0: Uh, we're continuing a series on 1 Peter. This is the third week. Peter, 1 Peter is a letter written um, around 60, 65 A.D., somewhere in that range, to Christians living in Asia Minor um, by the Apostle Peter. The Christians who are living in this area are undergoing persecutions um, at the time, and Peter is writing to encourage them in the midst of this. We who are not undergoing persecutions, but do feel pressures against faith in this world, can learn from Peter as he encourages this body of believers. He encourages them to persist in the face of persecution, to live faithful lives as disciples, largely based on questions of identity, of who God is, of who Jesus is, and of who we are in light of our relationship to God and Jesus. Now we discussed in the first week looking at Peter, this questions of this Christian identity, and how contrary to sometimes our conceptions of identity it's not something that we create it's not something that we pick and choose from a selection put in front of us, and it's also not something that's purely source material from which we can move forward, but instead it's something that's given to us by God, it's something that has a wholeness and a cohesiveness to it, and it's something that has a script, it has a direction that's implied by it. And then last week we considered the group to which this letter is written and how the church is not some random occurrence, some side thing that happened to come into existence that happens to be undergoing the position it is in this world, but rather that it is something that has come into existence in accordance with the purposes of God through the consecration of the Holy Spirit into a covenant with Jesus. And because of this, there is a blessing. As part of the church, we are the elect. We are, the peop- we are God's chosen people on this earth, and there is blessing that comes with that, and that needs to be understood so that we can persist through pressures against the faith. But at the same time, we now, and for the same reason, sit awkwardly in this age. We are exiles, We don't live in our homeland. We are foreigners. And that's who this letter is written to, these elect exiles. So that's Peter and who the letter is written to. And now we turn into the body of the letter. Um, The letter starts, as we discussed last week, Peter is following a regular convention of stating his name, who he's writing to, and then a blessing. He follows something else that shows up commonly in these letters next, which is an extended blessing to God. We see this in 2 Corinthians and in the section of Ephesians that Mike read. This blessing that's given to God is not simply filler or a nice fluffy space, though that section of Ephesians is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. The authors who are using these blessings also use them to establish the themes that show up for the rest of the letter. So in Ephesians, which we went through a number of years back, You have a book where Paul is looking to show how our salvation out of death has brought us not only into union with God, but also he's brought together a diverse group of people under the headship of Christ. And that's what he talks about primarily in this blessing. Similarly, now, as we look into this blessing that Paul is going to give God, which is a weird concept for me, but very much keeping in line with an Old Testament way of doing things, still seems odd to bless God, but he blesses God, he's also going to spell out some of the themes at a high level that we'll look at for the rest of the book. So this is found in chapter 1, starting in verse 3, and you can listen for the themes as we read through it. And it's a lot of topics that are touched on very quickly. You can see the themes of trials, of the persecutions that are hitting. You also see themes of identity, of who God is and of who Jesus is and who we are in light of this relationship and how it interplays. What's interesting is it also kind of covers the scope of a Christian's experience. It starts in the beginning. It persists through the middle, and it covers the end. And it gets at one of the questions is, is at what point are we saved? Like when the Bible speaks of somebody being saved, is it talking about something that happened in the past, that we are saved? Is it talking about something that's happening currently, that we are being saved? Or is it talking about something in the future, when Jesus returns and we're finally saved? And the answer is yes. It uses the same phrasing consistently. We are a people as Christians who have been saved. We are a people as Christians who are being saved. And we are a people as Christians who will be saved. And it's seen as a cohesive storyline. But that does give a nice breakdown of past present, and future. So we'll kind of bra- uh, look at this, um, this s- chunk of Scripture in that way. So you have been saved. Paul, Paul, Peter, starts this letter of this blessing with a focus on God. And we have to keep that in mind as we focus on identity. It's kind of what Terry was praying, that our identity comes first from God. And that it Any amount of focusing we do on our identity we have in God, we can't become so inward looking at that identity that we lose sight of the God who gives us that identity. And that's why Peter starts this with God as the starting point. Who he is is the most important thing. And the trait he calls out is God's mercy. According to his great mercy, all of this has taken place. Now mercy is a funny word. We had the phrase that went around a couple of years back. And you try and get mercy and grace, and how does this all fit? And you get mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And that is true, but it's also incomplete. It's a nice breakdown from a thing. But as I said last week, in terms of sanctification, the Bible is not a textbook. The words are a little more fluid. As is our normal use of the word mercy. Mercy, in most phrases, is referring to not getting what we um, deserve. We deserve punishment. You get mercy, so you don't get the punishment. But when you talk about something like an act of mercy, like when you talk about um, the woman that Terry is talking about, the poor, and they they go out, as the Catholics do, and do acts of mercy, we're not talking about going out and giving the poor food and coverage so that they don't get what they deserve, which is apparently starvation and exposure. I mean, there is a sliver that would probably phrase it that way, but that's not the idea. The idea is there is a sympathy given. There's a pity taken on a people and a state and a desire to move to address that. Mercy has an active nature that is giving, and that's what we have. That is who God is. That's what Peter foundationally starts this letter addressing is that God is a God of mercy in that he looks at our state. He looks at the state of this world. He looks at where we found ourselves. And we have found ourselves in the state of our own doing. But he does, is not content to leave it there. But he has sympathy. He takes pity on us. And he acts in that mercy. And what does he do? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are given, we are brought into a living hope, a hope that has life, that persists, that will continue. We've brought into a belief and a foundational look towards the future to which we can set our eyes and live in accordance with. And he does this by causing us to be born again. Causing us to be born again is kind of a strange way of putting it because we, we, we want to speak of us being born again. The challenge is that's a passive idea. We're the subject. Being born again puts it in a, a passive nature. The verb here that gets used is actually an active verb if God is the subject. It could best be translated as like rebegotting, begetting. He has rebegotten us, although we don't use that word, which is why I'm struggling to say it. Or you could say he rebirthed us. The idea is God has taken, had mercy upon us. Because of his mercy, he has come in and by his action caused us to be rebirthed. He's brought us into a new life by his action. He is the actor in this. Simply saying born again kind of leaves the question of how did it happen? I mean, Rose was born. Becca birthed her. And Becca has not forgotten it. Had Becca not done that, Rose would not have been born. There was an actor in this that has brought us to a new life, and it's God, and it was done because of his great mercy. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as I was reading through this, I realized this strikes me as different from, I think, what the popular presentation we have of the gospel is. The gospel is often said is Jesus died for our sins so you can be saved. That's the gospel. But when you When Paul comes and he talks in 1 Corinthians about what is the gospel, he states it as this. It is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared in bodily form so that people saw him. And then he takes it through to Jesus is now reigning and he will reign until the end when all enemies have been brought down before him. And sin and death and Satan are completely crushed and removed from this world. That's the gospel. By this gospel, this bare set of facts, this factual course of history, you can be saved. This gospel is good news regardless of individuals' decisions around it. This gospel is good news to the world outside of people. Creation has been brought under bondage because of our sin. This gospel says Jesus died crushing the hold of sin. He raised and has been vindicated, and now he sits on the throne. That is a statement of fact. That's good news to your dog if he could comprehend it. But it is by this gospel we have been saved. And that's a subtle difference, but I think it's an important one in the sense that it puts this concrete set of facts, this factual course of history that is and exists apart from us, but by that we might be saved. We have, we look at the world, and regardless of what we think of it, Jesus has been raised to the throne over this world, which raises in a lot of questions, it's either great or oh crap. Because you can realize, if you hear that, and you realize I've actually been standing in opposition to this Jesus this whole time, the question is, what's he going to do about this? I've been a rebel, and in the forces arrayed against him this whole time, and all of a sudden he's on the throne, what do I do? I mean, that's basically Peter's sermon when he gets up on Pentecost. Hey guys, Jesus was the Messiah, you killed him, he raised from the dead. And they're cut to the heart, and they ask, what can we do to be saved? And the answer is, he's a God of mercy. In his death, he also made a way for us to come back to him. So he has been, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. Not only are we born again to a living hope, but we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Every amount of riches you can get on this earth will eventually corrode. It's always like people are like, I'm going to get gold for when it all goes down, as though when it all goes down, there's going to be gold trading towers, as opposed to people with guns trying to take your gold. Sorry. Um, But we have all the wealth we can set aside in this world will eventually fall apart. But we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and surpasses anything we could have on this earth. I, as a child, read lots of older authors, and I loved older scientists. Always lived a few centuries later than I apparently desired. But eventually what you realize is all these old authors and all these old scientists had something in common. Most of them were rich or at least well off. The poor farmer in like 1600 is not trying to ponder the nature of gravity, he's trying to get the stinking potato plant to sprout so his family won't starve. It's the people who have an inheritance, who have in some way been a landed portion of this society, who have the free time to pursue these higher things of arts and sciences. There is a liberty that comes with having an inheritance. We have an inheritance. We are a people of wealth. We are a people of privilege. We are a people who have received and have great things, which should make it so when we go out in the world, we are not scrounging. Yes, we can go work hard. We can go pursue careers, but we don't need to cut every corner. We don't need to take every single opportunity. We don't need to kill ourselves or our souls in order to achieve something because we've already achieved it. We already have a position and a wealth that surpasses anything we can get on this earth. So we have been saved. But it's an inheritance that's not ours yet. It's kept in heaven to be revealed in the last time with this salvation that comes. Now, if you have a trust fund that vests when you, I don't know what trust funds do. I think they vest, stock vests. Trust funds vest now. If you have a trust fund that vests on your 21st birthday and you go out drinking on the night of it and die, your trust fund didn't help you. You have a pile of money that goes to someone else. So there's a question that's naturally raised by, great, we've been born again to a living hope with this massive inheritance. Are we going to get to it? So P- Peter, he were to call on Paul, Peter turns to address that. He turns to the fact that we are being saved. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are guarded by God's power as we go through this age. And what's fantastic is how does he do this? The one who starts with his mercy also guards us. How? Through our faith. And this is wonderful because it means he doesn't guard us by turning us into robots that just kind of march smoothly. He doesn't guard us by locking us away in boxes and making sure that nothing that could ever challenge a person's faith gets to us. Instead, he guards us through faith. He puts us in a position so we can actually endure trials, and then that means if trials come upon you, you haven't somehow left God's God's guarding, but rather, through your faith, he will guard you in the midst of those things. And he will see us through. There's an assurance here. But we have to be really careful with how it gets applied. Because if you apply this the wrong way, you're basically preaching peace, peace, when there's no peace to people. Because there's a conception popularly of once saved, always saved, and that gets misapplied. I agree with it largely in principle. If a person is saved, they are saved and will continue to be saved. But it can get applied in such a way that you basically could turn a reverse Paul. You could be a person who's born a Christian, be on your way to preaching somewhere, fall off your horse, have your come to no one meeting, and then go on... Devoting the rest of your life to persecuting Christians. And by the way this sometimes gets construed, you're fine. You believed. There's a little little, basically there's a large line chart of your life, and if faith ever just gets enough to peak above that, you're good forever, no matter what happens in the end. Now, what this says is you are guarded by faith. The person who does that and flips it over has ceased having faith. The thing that guards them is gone. Now, there is a better construction of this, which is the classic Reformed doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which would basically say those who have faith will see that faith persist. God will make sure it persists. He will continuously keep us. There will be enough faith to move us through this. We will be kept, and you will know. You can have assurance because you have faith. Now, you also can't rest I mean, the way that I conceive of this, the easiest metaphor I can put this into, and it's not an easy one, is essentially God is like the most forgiving spouse you can imagine. You are married to a spouse who will love you and welcome you back continuously again and again and again. You can go out drinking, hit all the ladies, come back with alcohol on your breath, repentant, and he welcomes you back. And he doesn't even make you sleep on the bed to make sure you're penitent for a while. This is not marriage advice, just to be clear. But he <laughs> welcomes you back like that. And he does it again and again and again. And he will continue doing. But what I have seen, and this is what I've seen in the natural world, is what I think scripture speaks of, is that the risk is not that you are going to finally sin badly enough that God says, okay, I've had it we're done, but rather that your heart will be hardened and you simply won't come back home one night. He'll still be sitting there with the tea there waiting for you to come back through the door, but you will have finally found another bed you'd rather sleep in. I've seen it with married couples that have had adultery in the past and eventually the one party is still trying to work it out, but the one who had committed the adultery goes, no, I want to go elsewhere. I've seen this multiple times. The heart has been hardened to sin, and there's not a desire to go back. The risk of sin to us is not that it's going to turn God away from us. You cannot sin badly enough that God says we're done. The risk of sin for us is that it's going to harden our heart, and we're going to stop caring and walk away. Now, what Peter said, and Peter knows this intimately. This is the guy who on the night Jesus is betrayed, Jesus is like, okay, they're going to come for me, arrest me, and kill me now. And Peter's like, not a chance. I'm with you to the end. To which Jesus is like, nope, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice tomorrow morning. You aren't going to make it to the end. You're going to fail tonight. And he does. And you can understand, because what we have here is Peter has his faith in Jesus. He believes this man is the Messiah. He believes this is the person who's come to overthrow the Romans. And he has his sword. I mean, he takes a swing and chops a guy's ear off. I don't know how he thought he was going to be helpful in battle. Complete surprise, and he hits an ear. He's a fisherman. But he is devoted. He believes and has faith in this Jesus And then he sees that faith crumble because the man he thought was going to rise up at this moment with Peter's triumphant sword to the ear being the first blow and take down the Romans and take Israel back to its place allows himself to be arrested. The people he, he, he was supposed to bring to the ground, he is now their captive. They're trying him and then they kill him. You can put yourself in Peter's position. You can see the trial his faith is going here, this belief in this Jesus. Now, when Jesus says, you're going to deny me, he also says something else. He says, Satan has requested to sift you, but I have prayed for your faith that it would persist. And when you return, shepherd the flock. That's what we have here. Jesus knows Peter is going to undergo a trial, so he prays that his faith would persist. He makes sure, because he's God, that that faith persists through Jesus' arrest, trial, death, so that Peter would hold the course and come back to be the apostle that he is. Peter knows this because he keeps screwing up. But each time he comes back and finds God and his faith has persisted. So we cannot rest on our laurels. Any idea that I signed a card when I was at summer camp in third grade, so I'm good, should be cast out. But we should have assurance that if you have faith, God will continue to see that faith. We just can't rest. Approach it with fear and trembling, but with no fear. That's the fun part of all this. Fear and trembling, no fear, just push them together. Somehow you get a nice persistent walk. But it is that we should take this seriously and understand the weight of this and understand the, thing, the effects sin can have upon us and the effects that can corrode our heart, but at the same time trust that God will see us through. And in this, there's great reason to rejoice. According to his great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, and he will see us through to the end. In this you rejoice. We need to rejoice, and we need to have that assurance, because it is, in this you rejoice. Where'd it go? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Trials will come. The trials these people are facing are the trials of people who are actively trying to crush their faith. Or actively trying to crush them because of their faith. Some people don't even care what you believe. They just want to see, they don't like the fact that you believe some, this other thing and they want to see it crushed. Fine. But they have that. But even outside of that, if you take away people who are trying to actively persecute your faith, you take away Satan, you take away demons, you still end up with a fallen world that is not the greatest incubator for a nice, robust faith. You're still going to run into illness. You're still going to run into job challenges. You're still going to run into being singled or being married. You're still going to run into kids and the waywardness of them. There's going to be things that are going to push upon your faith. There's going to be trials that come that test your faith. Faith guards us through this. And that's what it's talking about, this tested genuineness of our faith. As trials come, we see our faith tested. And don't think of it as testing as though it's a pass-fail test to see, oh, good, your faith got you through this time. Because remember, you're being guarded by your faith. It's more that you're seeing the strength of your faith. The example they use is gold, which gets tossed in the fire. When you toss gold in the fire, it does goldy things that do in fire. I assume it melts. But the impurities go one direction. I actually have no idea how gold works in a fire. You just know that after it's been in the fire a while, the impurities of the gold have been removed to a greater degree, and you have gold that's more pure. That's something of what we see in our faith. You get an assuredness that comes from this faith because you've seen this faith persist, and you also have a faith that's now proven to persist and had some of the crap just shaken off of it, and you would have a faith that's a little more true and solid. I've seen this in my life. When I, I think I've been a Christian for 18 years. When I first got saved, I pretty much thought God needed to wrap this entire thing up within 18 to 24 months because I wasn't going to make it longer than that. I mean, there were just way too many restrictions, way too many things I couldn't do. And I also knew myself. I have a bit of an obsessive personality. I get really into things for a stretch, and then I change the thing I'm really into for another stretch. My wife gets to live through this. But it's just generally me. So I'm like, is this just one of my newest obsessions? Is this going to last for this particular phase, this late college time? Is that where faith exists for me? And then I'll move out to the world and I'll find a new thing to do. But what I've seen is that a faith that has persisted through trials of friends leaving, relational struggles, It's a faith that has consistently persisted over the year through various trials. I saw a career path I thought I was going to take. I went somewhere else. I struggled through a career that I disliked strongly for a while, but had to be in because I made enough money to pay off the debt, the debt of my ex wife. It got me through that. I have been through a divorce, and I've been through it, and I know because of that that this faith continues to hold. Now, what I will say from experience, this is my own experience and watching other people, generally speaking, the faith you go into a trial with is the faith you leave with just more refined. Like when you toss gold into a fire, it gets refined. You don't get more gold. And when I see people, the theology you bring into a trial, it gets shaken You get some of the bad parts knocked off, but usually you don't suddenly develop a great new theology in the middle of a trial. So lay the foundation now. Prepare your faith for trials. Lean into God. Learn who he is. Come to understand our identity and where we're going more so that when the trial comes, you're not scrambling trying to figure out which book in the Bible from the index has how to deal with X. Get to know it now. So we have this faith that persists, that comes through this fire of these trials as something tested and genuine. You now have a greater assurance this faith is going to continue to persist because it's made it through all of this. So it should continue on into the future. Now, there can be a temptation at this point to basically go, okay, finally, I got a bulletproof faith. I'll put it on my desk, and now I can go do this because I'm safe finally. What you should do is you have this bulletproof faith, this bulletproof, this precious faith. You should lean into it all the more. You now have seen something that can persist. You see something that can get you through all the trials. You see something that brings you nearer to God when life goes sideways. So continue to stoke those fires. Don't rest on them. Because that's a drive we have to consistently have. We need to both be assured and also a desire to consistently lean into this and not just simply get complacent. Because there are people who have walked with God a very long time and then decided this is not it. They get really distracted by the other cares of life. Now again, they could be in a spot like Peter where they're doing their Jesus denial thing and they come back but there is a spot where we need to watch our hearts and we need to encourage one another and challenge one another to consistently push into God to build that faith, to lean into the thing by which God is guarding us. The other element about trials, which thankfully isn't here, is that they're temporary. For a little while, not forever, but for a little while you have been tested. And at the revelation of Jesus, they're all done, no matter where you are in this situation. The worst trials of this age, even if they persist for the rest of your life, are but a blink in comparison to eternity. I mean, we have trouble. We can't conceive of eternity, honestly. I mean, the longest thing I can conceive of is a very long time. And the thing with a very, very, very long time is that after you do live in it for like five days... What you end up with is a very, very, very long time minus five days. That's not how eternity works. Eternity is eternity, and after you've lived in eternity five years, you still have eternity. You don't get eternity minus five years. You have eternity. It just keeps going. It's like space. My daughter is obsessed with outer space. So we had the conversation about what happens at the edge of space, at which point I'm like, I don't know. It makes no sense to me, but space, by definition, has an endpoint. It has to stop at some point because it's material. God's not that way; He goes on forever. Time works the same way. Every time we can conceive of has an endpoint. Eternity doesn't. So we have a thing that is infinite awaiting us. It's amazing grace. We've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing His praise as when we'd first begun. 10,000 years, yep, you still have just as much time as you did when you started. In comparison to that, if you live the rest of your life with a, some sort of trial, illness, something, if you live the rest of your life and it's 100,000 more years for some reason, I don't know how you pull off robotics or something and live 100,000 years of a trial, it still is a blink in comparison to eternity. And all of this results in praise at the end. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the funny thing about that phrase is, who's getting the praise and glory and honor? It's not clear in the verse. And knowing the Greek, still not clear. All it says is that there will be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the question is, are we getting the praise because we persisted? That we lived this life guarded by faith and got to the end. Are we getting the praise and glory and honor? Or is God getting the praise and glory and honor because we persisted? Now, my honest answer after thinking about it for a long time is I have no idea. And I actually don't care. Because the two options are, at the end of time, in the presence of God, I get praise and glory and honor because I persisted by faith. Or, in the presence of God, he gets praise and glory and honor because of me that I persisted in faith. It's win-win. And it's possible that Peter was intentionally vague in his phrasing to allow for the just jumble of all of that. But the point is, at the end of all of this, when Jesus returns, there is praise and glory and honor because of the life we live here. This life is not pointless. Because there can be, it's like, okay, we've been saved. Here's the end. Why? This sucks sometimes. Why does this have to do? What are we supposed to be doing here? I mean, we have it in the beginning. We're put here to um, basically have kids, uh, repeat the image of God, and work. And Jesus, we went over this two years back. This continues on in the new covenant and in the Great Command um, Commission. But there still can be this like why, and the answer—it's not fully answered. God does not sit down and like there's not like a earlier book of the bible or an appendix where he just finally sits down and goes okay let me tell you about the councils of heaven and why this all went down the way that it did but again and again and again we see that there is a point to what we're going through that we shouldn't lose hope that we shouldn't feel like this is just a meaningless painful slog but there is something that comes through even the painful slog of it there's glory and praise and honor and in obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of your souls. We are, we will be saved. And you shouldn't think of souls here in some immaterial sense. This is simply to say all of you. That fundamental part of who you are will be saved. Your identity will be saved. It will persist. Again, it's going to be as though it came through a fire. But it will persist. All the bad parts are going to get shaken off. And when we're made like Jesus, bright shining as the sun, we will still be us, but we will be us as we were intended to be. Standing free from sin, free from death, in bodies that don't corrode and are made for eternity, but we will still be us just as we were supposed to be. Our identity will still be there. This is all grounded in God's action. It starts because of his mercy, it continues because he guards, and it's brought to an end when he reveals his son, when at Jesus' second coming. And that is to say, it also begins and ends with Jesus. This all starts because of his death and resurrection. Remember, the gospel is a foundational fact. It has happened. The question is, how do we respond to it? And it goes through to his return and his revela- at his revelation. And then I love this part in the middle. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. These are, this is written to people like us who didn't see Jesus, unlike Peter. And aren't now seeing Jesus. We can meet Jesus in various ways, but we don't have this physical man walking in front of us. We aren't like the people at the start of John, when John's talking about how we've touched him. We are not in that situation. We're taking this on a testimony. But they, like us, they don't see him, but they love him and believe in him. And the result of that is an ongoing... this. Rejoicing is something continuous now and on into the future. It's how this verse is written. This isn't like, and you rejoice, stop. And then you go to the grief part, do that, and then you rejoice, stop. It is, you are rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This section and this book is about life in hardships. It's about life as a foreigner in a foreign land. It's about a life as an exile. And that's why this opening, which is covering the themes, is that it has trials as the main chunk in the middle of it. But it's book ended by joy. The trials are there, but it starts with, "In this you rejoice," trials: joy inexpressible and filled with glory." That's how we have to conceive of this. It's in the midst of grief. We can't as Christians become happy, clappy people who pretend like nothing's bad because of Jesus. That is a lie. This world is filled with sorrow and pain and hardship and it's going to hit us and it's going to hit the people we love and care about and we need to be able to respond to real pain and hardship as real pain and hardship. And not just put a happy veneer on it because of Jesus. But We are a people who, in the midst of that hardship, expecting and accepting that hardship as what it really is, a trial, we can rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory because God is a God of mercy who started this and caused us to be born again. Because Jesus died upon the cross that we might have hope and a new birth, and he will return again. And because we are a people who have been born again to a living hope through his resurrection. And because we will obtain this glorious inheritance and be guarded along the entire way. And in the midst of all of that, we endure trials. But we know joy as a taste of the greater joy that is to come. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for your encouragement. I thank you for the challenge it is. I thank you for the life that it can breathe into us, and I, I ask that you would breathe your life into us. Father, this world is often hard and confusing, and you don't give us all the answers to it. But we know that we have you. We know that your son sits upon the throne. We know that your spirit dwells within us. I pray, Father, that you would grant us greater faith, or that you would nourish our faith and nourish us in the activities that nourish faith. Know that you would use the trials of our life to refine that faith, to shake free false conceptions, to shake free um, easy answers, to grow us into a robust faith, Able of enduring even more. And I ask that through all of this, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with a joy inexpressible. That we would, even in the midst of hardship and grief, have a deep undercurrent of rejoicing present. I thank you that we can trust in you for that. In your son's name, amen.